You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt. And not just any elk hunt, we're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent, and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. And if you decide to purchase any products from the website, Enter the discount code NATION30. That's the word NATION with the number 30 after that. No spaces. NATION30. And you will receive 30% off your purchase. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have a bit of a Hunter Profile podcast where we talk to a guy named Hunter Wiltshire out of Ohio who is only three years into bow hunting. 
and he shot one hell of a deer this year, a uh, 155-56 class four-year-old, and it's a stud. And last year, he shot a good deer, and the year before that, he shot uh, a spike buck, and the year before that, he wasn't even a bow hunter. It wasn't even on his radar. So on this episode today, we talk about Hunter's introduction into hunting. You know, he doesn't come from an outdoor family. He kind of taught himself. He listened to a lot of podcasts. He watched a lot of YouTube, um, outdoor television, and it all kind of led him to where he is today, and that is a hardcore bow hunter, man. And uh, I love hearing these stories because... I like talking with people like myself who are, you know, almost 20 years into the sport, if not more. And I love listening to how people who are only three years in just got into the sport. Now, uh, Hunter here is 25 or 26, I think. And uh, I was about 25 or 26 when I got into the hardcore part of bow hunting. Now, I'd been hunting several years before that, but uh, um, never took anything serious. So we talk about gear, we talk about strategy, we talk about, you know, what his goals were going into every season. We talk about wounding a deer and losing it and uh, the emotions that were, uh, you know, on the lows. We also talk about the emotions uh, on the highs of the highs. And it's just a really good podcast, man. Really good conversation. And I love uh, I love uh, podcasts like this. So uh, listen to it. It's a really good episode. But before we get into today's podcast we have to talk about vortex optics they're our title sponsor and uh these guys do have a an apparel line that you guys should all go take a look at but vortex optics is known for their optics right vortex optics i have their rangefinder it is money i have a pair of binoculars that i've had for seven or eight years man i love being able to say that i love being able to say that i beat the shit out of a piece of equipment and i can go and count on it when i'm out you know in the tree stand or i'm out west or wherever i can count on my vortex optics working now let's say i break them They have this VIP warranty where once you buy a pair of Vortex Optics, the only thing that you have to do if they become damaged, whether it's your fault or an accident or there's a malfunction in the, you know, the the binocular spotting scope, whatever product it is, all you have to do is send it in and they fix it for free and send it back to you. That's one hell of a warranty. And uh, that's... On top of that, there's just a lot of awesome people who work for the company, awesome customer service. It's a company that supports the activity, right? That they're they're marketing towards. So they, they support hunters, they support the second amendment guys, they support, you know, everything that has to do with their product line because they are participants, right? Just a, just an awesome company. A lot of great people that work there um, and uh, they give back to conservation as well. So why don't you guys go check out vortexoptics.com? Check out their full lineup of rangefinders, spotting scopes, binoculars, uh, rifle scopes, red dots, you name it. They have a optic for you. Vortexoptics.com. And uh, that's the commercial. So now we can get into today's, I guess we'll call it a Hunter Profile podcast with, what's his name? What is his name? His name is Hunter Wiltshire. 
All right, let's get into it. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Hunter Wiltshire. Hunter, what's up, man? Not a whole lot, man. Just getting through the day. How about you? Oh, you know, that's uh, that's a good way to put it. Just getting through the day. Like, I am uh, this this week right here that we're getting ready to. We're recording this on a Sunday night. I have um a very busy week because I have to do two weeks worth of work in order for me to go on my South Dakota trip that I have going the following week. So I have, I have a whole bunch of stuff to do. I got to finish up some, uh, like some honeydew projects around the house. We're putting trim in. I just did some fake wall. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's called shiplap or something like that. I don't know what that is, but it's a, it's like just some fancy wall for my wife. And, uh, I got to get all this stuff done before Saturday when I leave to go to South Dakota. So no pressure, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. Yeah. So done, but good time. Yeah. So you kind of had a, uh, a pretty successful uh, bow season this year. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, for sure my best one yet. Um, I've only really been hunting for a couple of years now. So just having the opportunity was just uh, really amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah. I love it when people send me a, you know, a picture of a deer that they shot with their bow. Like the size to me doesn't really matter. It's just cool hearing the stories and, you know, Hey man, I, I learned some tactics through listening to the podcast and, and, uh, you know, I, I harvested this buck and, or this doe It's my first deer ever, or, you know, Hey, this is my, you know, this is my sixth year or my first year or whatever. I just love hearing all these stories and I kind of want to break yours down. Um, because you mentioned in the message that you sent me, that uh, it's only your third year of bow hunting, and I kind of want to get into that. But before we get into that, uh, why don't you tell everybody where you're from and what do you do for a living? Yeah, I live in uh, southwestern Ohio around uh, the Dayton area, if anybody knows there. Um, and I am a Frito-Lay delivery driver. Frito-Lay. Oh, man. Yeah. I, w- I would get in trouble if I was a, a food <laughs> delivery guy. It's tempting for sure at times. <laughs> do you ever, do you ever, uh, you know, like accidentally step on a bag and be like, oh no, I damaged it. Better, better ride it up and then you just eat it. I mean, I wouldn't, I can't lie in saying that I've never popped a queso dip open or anything. <laughs> <until>. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, so are are you like really early in the morning, like a lot of a lot of other delivery drivers, or are you throughout the whole day? Yeah, I'm. It, it's kind of like a weird mid early shift. So like I'll start around three four o'clock and end around three four o'clock. So. Okay. So you're running uh, you're running twelves yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, most days. And are you working a five day shift, or do you go into the weekends as well? Five day, yeah. I mean, in the holidays, you can always pick up extra work if, if you're short on cash. But yeah. right now, it's just five. Gotcha. So, what? Where do your delivery routes take you? Because I've, I had a buddy who used to drive a delivery truck in Chicago, and he would drive, you know, in in a really big city, uh, in the middle of the night. I think he delivered bread, 
yeah, I think it was bread and pastries and he would, you know, he'd be up like two, three in the morning and right as all the bars are getting out, he's starting, starting to work or, or whatever. And he, he, it would always tell me crazy stories about some weird stuff that he saw while he was uh, driving around. So do you have a, oh my God, what did I just see story? Uh, sort of, kind of. I actually used to be a bread delivery driver like your friend. So uh, there was this one I delivered to like a, a dairy queen in a small town. And uh, when I got there one day, someone had actually broke in and uh, stolen all the cash and the change out of the drawers and everything. And uh, ended up being a real long story because once the cops got there, we had to st- stick around until they could file a report and stuff. But it's probably just some kids running around. But that's pretty much the weirdest story I've, I've got is just crazy people stealing and stuff so so you you showed up after the crime was committed yeah it it was honestly probably only a few minutes after because like like you could just tell that someone had just been there like they may have seen our lights and busted out the back door kind of thing man that that would be creepy imagine if this will probably spook you but (laughs) imagine if you 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 went to go do your job and then you felt, man, am I being watched? Is there somebody else in there? And then you see on the news later, like, oh my God, that guy was hiding while I was delivering bread or dr- delivering chips or something. Yeah, well, you, I mean, there's some some stories that I've heard from guys like walking into a school uh, early in the morning. They've got keys to the back door, and like the lunch lady got drunk and passed out in the kitchen one night. <laughs> and they walked. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah, I mean, you never know what you're walking into. So. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh man. So whitetails. All right. You mentioned in this, yeah. uh, you mentioned in this message that you, you've only been bow hunting for about three years now. So were you still a hunter before three years ago or are you just picking up bow hunting? Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. Cause like my parents, obviously gave me the name hunter you'd think they would be outdoorsmen of some sort but neither my mom or my dad really care that much about hiking camp and anything and i've just kind of lived my whole life uh interested and i'd never uh even so much as shot a bow crossbow or a shotgun uh, before three years ago and just took it up and i mean took my life by storm it's like i was made for it yeah so all of a sudden, the the bow hunting gods tapped you on the shoulder and said, "Boom, you're a bow hunter, and yeah. your life it, is now it, transformed." It, yeah, from the very first doe I got an opportunity at, I just forever changed. So, so what did you do amazing. before you were a you know would started bow hunting? What was your hobby? Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a younger guy, so you know, video games and working out has pretty much been. Uh, the gist of everything I was doing up until then. Um, but I had, my dad had actually passed away in 2016 and I was just kind of feeling a little low and down and wasn't really getting what I was, wanted from, from my other hobbies and just, it was just the perfect timing. It was weird because my wife, we were dating for a couple of years and like, I didn't know, but her father-in-law owned 73 acres in Southeastern Ohio uh, and he didn't hunt. And I just asked him, and so that's the property I've actually been hunting. Just kind of came across as kind of a weird kind of thing. <laughs> gotcha. All right, so so how old are you then? I'm 25. Okay, 25. Um, you've only been bow hunting. Well, I'll tell you this. I started bow hunting 
when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, somewhere around there. Never really got into it until I was 26. You know, I did the sports thing. I did the school thing. I did, you know, college, chase the girls, party, all that stuff. And then 26, 2006 is when I cannonballed into, uh, into it. Right. And, um, Man, I, I tell you, it kind of, it just kind of 360'd my life. And, you know, now all, everything I do revolves around bow hunting and hunting. Um, what was that, what was that moment like? Did you have a, um, a mentor or a, another person talk you into it? Or did you just say, hmm, that looks interesting. This is something I'd like to try. Yeah. Um, I honestly, uh, I would say like you and I mean, I, I, I'm a truck driver, so I just, all I do is podcast all day. Yeah. So that's pretty much been future is, uh, you rest the sportsman's nation. I watch, I listen to wired to hunt, things like that. So it's just been YouTube videos and podcasts for the most part. I mean, there've been a few people, uh, a few guys in my church and stuff that like when I've got weird questions or, uh, I, I need help with a deer drag or something like that, I can call them and they'll help me out. But yeah. for the most part, it's just been kind of watch and listen and learn. But so. for someone who's not a hunter, right, or or come from a family of hunters, how do, how did you come across hunting content then? Is it just something that, uh, like, did it just pop in your brain one day? Or did you, did you go looking for it? Um... Like, I've always been interested in the outdoors, like hiking and things like that. I did most of my life. And so, and my name's Hunter. And then I'd really say, like, what really put, put the nail in the coffin for me to try it was uh, when Meat Eater started showing up on Netflix. I, like, watched a season of that, and it just got me, like, hooked. And then I was just like, I might as well give it a shot since I have this property that my father-in-law owns and he doesn't use. So I, I tried, and I don't know, just got me there. Gotcha. All right. So when you had this little click in your brain and you said, man, I want to, I want to hunt. Did you think about gun hunting first or did you automatically go right to bow hunting? Um, I automatically went to straight, straight to bow hunting, uh, mainly for like, obviously like, especially in like Ohio, we only have like a two week gun season and then a couple weekends for muzzleloader. And I wanted to get into it real fast and, uh, there was like a, I found a deal on Craigslist for a crossbow. And so I got like a lot of the stuff for fairly cheap and, um, just bought a little ground blind and just put it out there and stuff. Okay. So I, it, yeah, I just wanted to get into it as fast as possible is basically how I was thinking. So what time of year was it when you started prepping or was it already October or something? And you're like, oh man, I got to get some stuff so I can go. Or did you say, if I want to hunt by October or September, I need to have these things and, and everything set up. Yeah. So that's kind of where the, the podcasting started was like, I, it was around like August and I found out that it's hunting season in two months. And so I started listening to, I just, I heard about podcasts and, um, looked up hunting ones and I ended up just looking up and finding out like, what's the bare essentials you need to make it through kind of thing um to try because like i mean i don't make big big bucks just right so right so so you you went to podcasts looking for answers and uh uh, 
you know, gear and all that stuff. Was that all self-educated or did you talk to anybody from your church or any other hunters that you ran into saying, Hey man, what do I need? How does, how does this work? Because there's times, even when I listen to podcasts or even when I'm doing my own podcast, I listen to it again, or I think back, Oh man, I should have asked that question or I should have covered this. And, and as I'm sure, you know, when you start to get into things, specifically gear, it can just confuse the shit out of people if they're new, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I cannot even, I mean, we could talk for hours on but the barriers to entry were very great. Um, I did have one guy that like, he'd only ever gun hunted. Um, but he just like gave me access to his property to get my bow bow sighted in and to practice and everything like that. Um, so there was that, but like, especially for my first season, like the first doe I shot at, I, I wounded her, hit her real far back and I didn't know that you needed to wait. And so I chased her immediately and ended up losing her. Yeah. And so like that killed me. And so like that really, uh, like convicted me to to learn and so then like i refused to hunt again until i felt 100 percent confident what i was doing so that's when i just started diving into information overload and yeah uh uh, yeah i mean i hear you with the podcast it's just eventually i just did a lot of digging and found the answers i needed felt confident yeah So. so why did you decide and this is not like a low blow or anything i'm just honestly curious why did you decide to go with a crossbow right off the bat and not a, a vertical bow, a compound? Um, just strictly for the accuracy. Yeah. Um, but especially like coming into hunting from like watching meat eater as a show, like they care a lot about efficacy and, and taking and taking deer without wounding them and everything like that. And so like I came in from that perspective where I just really wanted to see uh, the deer I shoot go down and so uh i really didn't feel confident at all with bow any like with using a compound bow or a recurve or anything like that at first and so um i just really gravitated towards that and i didn't have anybody to show me the ropes so like especially when it comes to like compound i found especially this year being my first year using a compound that like without really having any kind of knowledge in it and not having anyone to teach you you just have a really huge margin of error to to screw up on and so kind of how i ended up there gotcha so the first year uh and let's stick with equipment right now what was some of the biggest hurdles obstacles learning curves that you had to overcome with the gear side of things before you felt ready to hop in the woods and actually try to kill something um probably the biggest thing was a blind and a crossbow. Um, I didn't feel like one of the guys that I was talking about at my church talked about, told me like before I even started hunting that like his buddy a couple of years back fell out of a tree stand and broke his back. So I was like terrified of tree stands. Um, so I just got a ground blind, um, and then the crossbow, but later on that season, I'd say the biggest hurdle was just being cold because I, I mean, it was Walmart camo all the way for the first year. So yeah, it was just a lot of days and, and wet mornings and things like that. So and honestly, I think that makes people tough. And I think that makes people go, you know, there's, there's so many tips, tricks and tactics and, and shortcuts and, and expensive gear that you can buy, you know, 
and I think like it's almost like paying your dues if that makes sense because mm-hmm. I had to go through that. I I did the cotton socks and and sweatpants over jeans and a camel sweatpants yeah. over jeans and hooded sweatshirt over hooded sweatshirt over hooded sweatshirt. Uh, you know when I first when I first started hunting and man I was cold all the time and my equipment was junk and and uh, until I you know, really started focusing heavy on it. It was almost like I had to, I had to walk through the fire in order to tell myself, Hey man, if you're going to do this, you know, you gotta, you gotta dedicate some time, energy, money to this, this, Mm -hmm. this thing. So as you, as that year kind of went on, um, like, did you feel confident going into the first, you know, your first hunt with the equipment that you had? Uh, to be honest, no. Okay. And I've really beat myself up for it. Um, uh, if you, are you talking about this year or you mean in no, my I, first year? Huh? Yeah, your first year, your first year. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't feel confident at all. Um, I really tried, like I was shooting really good with my, um, practice points, but I didn't have a target that would be able to use broadheads. And I used fixed blade, um, broadheads on my crossbow. And I ended up even finding out right after I screwed up that first shot that it was, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have even gone into the woods with it. Um, but it's like, like you're saying, kind of paying your dues. Like I, I felt like I really got that wrist slap right after I screwed up and it just like, it, it strained me up. And like, even up until this point, I mean, I've only, I have, I've wounded one other deer, but I've always recovered all the animals I've shot. Yeah. Um, at this so it's just like, I don't, I don't make shots that I don't feel comfortable with anymore, really, uh, since then. What did that feel like for you? Talk about the emotion uh, of, of wounding your very first animal and not finding it. Oh, it was heart-wrenching. I still, I still sweat about it sometimes because it's just like, you go from like a valley to a mountaintop to a valley uh, just constantly for, it's just this massive up and down for 10, 12 hours. Cause I, when I initially shot her and stuff, like the blood looked really good. She mule kicked and everything that I, that I now hear about sounded good. But from what I'm thinking now, I think I hit her uh, back and probably liver. Um, so it probably, she needed probably six or seven hours to, to expire. And I kicked her out of beds and everything found blood, lost blood, found it again amazing things but then just like really realizing after spending 10 12 hours miles into the woods asking permission and still losing blood i just like i just remember i couldn't even sleep i was so sick to my stomach for months i mean it just it really took a toll on me just like thinking it's you talk about it all the time it's like it being a really selfish sport but it's also just like this opportunity for us to be out in the woods and to experience things that not a lot of people get to experience. And I felt like I took it for granted by uh, like wounding my first year and not spending the time I ought to, have to, to feel confident. Yeah. So how long did it take you um, to get back on your horse that year, so to speak, and get that confidence rebound from that bad shot, you know, and that learning experience to get back out in the woods and give her another try. Uh, I didn't get back. So we had a September 29th. So it took me about probably five or six weeks for me to feel comfortable getting back out, um, out there and hunted for a few more times and ended up actually shooting a spike buck that year. 
um, and getting them smoked him that, that time. He only, he probably went 30 yards and piled up. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. In that, in that, uh, five week period, did you go back to the drawing board on your equipment and just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot? Or did you just kind of take a step back and kind of just mentally regroup? Uh, I'd say all of the above, but yeah. mostly the shoot and shoot, shoot. <laughs> I, I just like, I completely, like I took my scope off my crossbow, uh, got it all reset, talked to my, found, found another guy in my church that knew a little bit about bows. He helped me out with getting the, getting it all centered and everything and started, got a target that would take fixed blades and stuff. And I got it figured out after that, um, really. So it was just a lot of time and effort putting into just taking the time to get my setup good. Yeah. Now, the now, so you, you, you had a shitty first encounter, you wound a deer, you go back to the drawing board, you regroup, so to speak, you get back out there and eventually this spike buck comes through your first deer. You know, this could potentially be your first deer ever. Um, once you, once you actually put a good shot on it, and was like, oh my God, I just did this for the first time ever. What kind of emotions or feelings were running through your body uh, at that point? Uh, I mean, I couldn't stop shaking for the first, for like 30 <laughs> minutes. Um, another thing, like I took a, I took a kid from my youth group out this year to get his first year. And uh, one thing that like he took away from the experience that I hadn't really gotten the words to describe, but he, he did it perfectly was like this kind of uh, focus that you get when you're hunting. Like there's no, it, in my life, really, I just, I'm always like, I talk about being in like autopilot yeah. all day long when yeah. I'm driving. Stuff like and it's like, I'm never more present than the moment that I see a deer that I want to shoot. Like right. the moment that a deer comes in, and I see it. I mean, I, there is not a single other thing that's on my brain other than please come closer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's just like experiencing that, just like that moment of, to me, it's like a complete de-stressor. Um, and then you just like, all, the thing that's probably gravitated me the most about hunting in that moment when I shot and took my first animal was just like the level of connection I felt the world around me yeah. and it's that's really been the thing for hunting to me it's just like just a really it's connection it's all about connecting into life rather than living up five thousand feet above it um constantly thinking about things <laughs> yeah man that's uh that's a really good point of view i uh <laughs> i i can remember well even this year any any deer i kill really or any time even when i go shed hunting and i find a shed or um I, I run into something like a big rub or a scrape, or I'm, I'm trying to figure out what tree I want to put my tree stand in for that, that night's hunt. You do, you have a lot of these moments of clarity where you, man, I don't even know if I can properly describe it other than a moment of clarity. And you, you just are your zone. You are so in the zone that nothing there's nothing else that's that matters in the world at that moment right like you know you could you can't hear a car horn go off or you can't you don't know if an airplane's flying overhead or or if there's a combine or tractor running in the background or if your phone's buzzing or or whatever you're just like 
extremely focused on the task at hand. And man, I tell you what, I love those feelings. Oh yeah. I can imagine, especially for you with, with all the kids running around and stuff. I mean. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But I for a moment is real good. Yeah. So, so you, you were jacked when you shot this spike buck, you know, and, and you knew you, you made a good hit, but what were you thinking when you actually walked up on this animal for the first time? And, and it's a two part question and there's that. And then the second part of the question is you just killed an animal, right? For was, was this the first animal that you ever killed? Yes. Okay. So success, but this is the first time you ever killed an animal. What was going through your mind uh, on, on that stage as well? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's for sure a very interesting cocktail of emotions. I mean, at first it's like, I mean, every hunter you ever watch a video on, you hear like the gratitude and that's like step one in my mind, what goes on. As soon as I look at and I see like the deer's down, I know it's down, it's dead. As soon as you know that, like, it's now yours, it's just like overwhelming sense of gratitude. Yeah. Uh, but then you have that with this, like, idea that you just took a life. Yeah. This is the first life you've ever taken. And to me, like, in that moment, I just felt like a supreme sense of, like, responsibility. Like, it's, it's now my responsibility to, to use this animal uh, for my family and to use it as food, to, to, like a lot of the uh, podcasts I listen to go around like the R3 initiative and everything like that. And like I, one of the things with hunting, especially that I've tried to look at in regards to my family and everything is just like really showing them like what it's like and what it is when we're consuming meat and how connecting it can be and how amazing like the food can taste and everything like that. I mean, at times, of course, they're a little against it because uh, it's, in their mind, a deer is different than a cow. But at the end of the day, though, like it's just it's a responsibility once you take life. Yeah. And it's hard to 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 understand. It's hard to really take in all the way. But at the end of the day, like that responsibility is like the ultimate satisfaction. I think, especially when I'm hunting. Like, yeah. That moment that a steak to a family member or something like that. And so that that yeah, I mean. I, I won't lie. I mean, I'm confident enough in my masculinity to say I cried over my first year. Hell yeah, man. Um, when I, and it was, it was, it was just, it was a moment with me alone in the woods, no one but God and just me spending some time with that animal and treating it right. And then harvesting the meat myself. I've butchered about three quarters of my own deer, um, over the years now. So, yeah. so did you eat deer yeah. meat before that? No, 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 I'd had maybe the venison sticks you buy right. at a store that you see on the kind of thing, but no, I'd never had venison before then. So then what were, were your first meat, you know, your, your deer meat eating experiences? Um, let me think. I think the first one I did, I'm a big stir fry kind of guy. Okay. So I cut up the, cut up the tenderloins and threw them into a stir fry with some teriyaki and soy sauce. Okay. And that was a meal. And then I think I had a steak after that. Turned out good? Um, it did. Like, 
it, it, it takes some getting used to because, like, especially coming from, like, my background of never killing anything, like, I mean, it tasted just like a normal steak, but, like, it wasn't a normal steak, if you know what I mean. Like, right. just, like, biting into everything was just kind of hard for – it was a mental hurdle to get over. Like, I kept thinking about seeing the deer and everything like that, but it's taking me a few years to kind of get used to it. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, it, it's pretty good. I, I would like to think of myself as a pretty good cook. Um, I like cooking recipes, and um, between me and my wife, I do – primarily most of the cooking so um got a few skills to to test it gotcha all right so you are uh now three years in and you had a really successful season this year where has your growth been what was the learning curve these first three years that led you to shooting a, a really good buck yeah um so like I said, I kind of lost my property that my father-in-law owns in, in Ohio. Um, and so uh, over the last couple of years, it's really just been learning the property. Um, the, the really cool thing is there's like six to 700 acres that border the property lines owned by this uh, doctor that used to have an outfitting business out of it. Well, about a year and a half before I started hunting on the land, someone fell out of a tree stand. And it became like a legal thing. And so nobody's allowed hunting on that property. So I ended up pretty much being the only hunter in the greater part of about 800 acres Ooh. of like really prime. <laughs> white yeah. So you landed so, like, that's bad luck that someone got hurt, but it's good luck for you because now you are, you're, you, you got this sanctuary around you. Oh yeah. Like I've, I've gotten no shortage of, big deer like i i mean like last year for example i i shot probably one a mid what i would consider to be like a mid 130s buck um and i had much bigger deer on the property and then uh just this year i probably had four or five deer that were three and a half or older which i mean it's year three so i'm not i the the tough thing is is like i'm i'm completely fine with shooting a smaller buck but at the same time like when you're getting deer like that on camera it's kind of hard to to not want to try try a shot at them so yeah absolutely so now we talked a little bit about the equipment and we're going to get back into that because you went from crossbow the first two years to this year doing the compound for the first time right yep okay it's my first year all right so we'll get into that in a second but what i want to start talking to you about is the strategy because and you know i know you mentioned you listen to a lot of podcasts and you know we talk about strategy and on these podcasts but um it's listening to something and then actually going and applying it can be two different things and potentially overwhelming if you don't know how to apply that you know how to apply it so from a strategy standpoint what were your goals what did you, what did you look for what were you trying to accomplish over the first two years maybe in season and outside of season yeah the the biggest goals uh for me were to figure out the movement on this particular property um so like kind of the layout of the property is like it's it's the property lines are shaped like a perfect equilateral triangle, but it's really just one ridge. So the whole, the whole property just rises up until it plateaus at the very top and it's all old forest. There's no really good bedding. 
but there's a ton of mass producing trees. And so uh, it was really hard because it's not like the, the cut and paste perfect situation you hear about on podcasts where you've got real thick bedding areas that go into that uh, you try to intersect in between food or a water source or stuff like that. It was just basically the same thing over the course of the whole property. And so uh, coming into year two and three, I've just really been trying to just spend time in an area where I can see a pretty good ways and try to figure out how the deer move. Um, year two, I learned a little bit of it, but this year I actually got my first opportunity to do, to have a rotation where I was able to spend seven full days, morning and evening, and oftentimes all day in a stand just watching deer. And so that really helped me figure out what to do, especially what ended up happening the morning that I shot my buck this year. Okay. So this, this 80 acres basically that you have or 70, 80 acres that, that you, that you've been hunting, um, break that down for us. When you, when you stepped onto that property for the first time and started looking around, what got your attention? What were you looking for that said, okay, I need to go here. I need to go here or stay away from there or whatever. Yeah. One of the things that I hear all the time with podcasts when I was looking at it on, on top of like, I've got all necks and stuff uh, that I pretty much look at religiously uh, is like finger ridges. And so there are probably about three or four really well-defined finger ridges on this property. Um, and so I was looking at those, that was like my first look, uh, and then like distance from a road. So I found, I ended up zeroing in on this. There's, you've got like the very top of the hill and then about a third of the way down from the top, it ends up being like a really long bench that goes across the whole back of the property. And off of that bench comes two or three of those finger ridges that I was talking about. And so to me, that was a really, that was the spot that I needed to pay particular attention, throw cameras out at. And um, I ended up making, my father-in-law allowed me to make a few food plots and stuff like that. So I was just really trying to narrow in and funnel that deer movement uh, using those two drain features to my advantage. Okay. And as you went in to maybe your first couple of years and started setting up, you know, trail cameras or did you use trail cameras at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I only had, uh, I think three trail cameras last year and then I ended up using four or five this year okay. over the course of the whole year. So, so last year when you started setting up trail cameras, what kind of information did you get from those trail cameras? Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to lie. The first three quarters of the year, uh, my placement of trail cameras sucked. So I didn't really get a whole lot of good intel. Um, but towards the end of the year, after I had already got my buck and everything, we had a really good snow. Um, and I remembered from a podcast in the past that like, if you want to figure out deer movement, go directly after snow and you can see all the deer, where the deer go and stuff. So I figured out where that movement was and threw some cameras out and pretty much figured out that like, uh, the two biggest pieces of information from year two was when the rut starts to happen on my property and that in the beginning of the season, I really only have two or three doe groups. Cause like I said, there's not really a lot of bedding area. Um, and so hunting on that property isn't really good early season. It's usually pretty good during the rut when I get a few bucks that come from this better property down the hill. 
Um, they'll just come up and chase does and stuff like that all over the property. So it really taught me to like invest a little bit more in food. I tried to do some hinge cutting and stuff like that this year to increase some bedding opportunities for the does. Um, but as far as like trail camera data for the, for like that second year, all I really found was like a couple pictures of some decent bucks and, and a bunch of does uh, throughout most of the year until I ended up throwing trail cameras out towards the year on the okay. travel route. So on that second year then, did it, uh, did any of the information that you gained with those trail cameras lead you to putting a tree stand in a specific area or moving a tree stand? Uh, I would say yes on a couple of, t- uh, in a couple of areas, but I ended up figuring out like where I shot the buck last year, uh, that I got really wasn't that good of a spot, um, this year, I found out like really particularly where the like where the buck ended up coming up at the top of the hill. It's really weird because I don't know like there's no train features that suggest that the bucks would come up from this particular spot. But I kid you not, I saw 15 to 20 bucks come within 10 feet of that one spot on top of that hill this year. And so um, I actually, along with podcasting stuff, heard a lot about saddle hunting. So I took took the mobile route this year, and so. I really didn't do any permanent sets. It was just uh, set up, watch for deer movement. If I don't see anything for two or three sets, move to another spot to kind of go around until I, I could figure stuff out. So from year two, um, the biggest information I learned was really that uh, around the bench that I was talking to you about with, that has those two finger ridges that come off of it. If you go about in between the top of the hill and that bench up the hill, that's where I saw like the most mature buck activity that entire year uh, in year two. And so that actually ended up being the ticket for the buck that I shot this year. Gotcha. So you've come a long way in a short period of time here. You kind of jumped right into saddle hunting already. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like I said, I just listened to a bunch of stuff and especially like with you talking about just like, how mobile uh, mobile hunting has been like your success in so many yeah. things and like really just taught me I got thinking and stuff and people are talking about like you yeah. only have to buy one one set again for their, your entire life if that's what you want or you can do other things but yeah. at the end of the day like having that 15 pound set up to hop into most any tree is just it's hard to hard to beat yeah so. makes a lot of sense makes a lot of sense all right so what did you end up shooting uh, in your second year? Uh, like the as far as, the, deer no, no, the, the deer. What did you What did you end up shooting? Uh, you, you mentioned a buck, right? Yep. Yeah. He uh, He was a mainframe eight with a split brow time. Okay. Um, I would say if I were to if I were to put a score on him, I'd say probably like between one thirty and one forty. Oh, so um, a really good deer then. He was, yeah, he was real wide. Like okay. he, he's a good, pretty good deer. Yeah. Okay. So, so a lot of people like you got a good spot because a lot of people don't even see deer like that in, you know, some of the surrounding States, obviously Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, some of these high pressured, you know, high pressured States they're, they're, they're out there, but they're not, you know, you know what I mean? They're, they're not everywhere. Um, so mm-hmm. when you ended up shooting that buck, did you feel any different about it? Um, 
were you hunting bucks specifically or were you still kind of hunting anything that came by? Uh, I honestly was pretty much hunting anything that came by. I passed one basket rack eight um, that had come by. He was just a yearling because, like, to me, it was like two and a half or older if I was going to shoot a buck. Yeah. Um, is what I my was. I mean, the thing is, especially with it being like my third season, and at that point, it had been my second season, I like it. One sit, I'd have like really high aspirations, and then the next sit, I'd shoot a spike if it came by. So I kept going back and forth on what what my expectations were, and I mean, he was literally the second bu- uh, buck that I'd seen that entire year. Okay. Um, I say to your question about like my reaction to him, um, the biggest thing was just like the difference. Like I could remember at that point still quite vividly like my first buck experience with the spike. And the difference between that and the buck that I ended up getting the opportunity with, like just seeing him come through the the woodwork and the antlers and everything. I mean, I about had a heart attack in the, in the tree. Cause like <laughs> at that point I'd never seen a deer with my own two eyes, even close to that size. And so like I was, uh, I was blown away. I could even keep my crossbow leveled on him uh, long enough to get a good shot. But luckily he came in broadside at like 12 yards and, uh, got hit hard yeah but, so with yeah. that you know with that deer coming in and you making the decision to shoot him you know antlers can do some crazy things to people especially when you like they didn't really mean too much to me when i was young until you know you start reading some of these magazines and some of these articles and you hear people talk about big bucks big bucks you know um had you been in, uh, affected by that at all the the big score big antlers or did was it just still just another deer coming down the the lane um i mean i can't lie that it didn't have any effect on me i'd say it did but the the, the biggest effect I think was just like the conversation around maturity. Yeah. Um, like that, it, it, it hasn't really been even now hasn't really been about the antlers to me as much as it is about like the fact that the deer had the opportunity to like express his genes in the population and live a decent life in the woods and stuff like that, rather than just take the first year that comes like, I, I mean, I don't knock anybody for, for, for making that decision. I, I mean, this year there were times where I, I was like the morning that I ended up shooting the buck this year, uh, a, a yearling buck was coming down that I had planned to shoot, but he got spooked by something <laughs> and, and took off before I could uh, get my bow drawn back. And so, um, I wouldn't say I'm like after antlers as much as I care about the idea of shooting more mature animals because I mean, for the check, but also for like the, the idea behind like the conservation ethic and having a decent population and things like that on property. Gotcha. Okay. Um, did you harvest any other deer last year as well? Uh, Any does? Yeah, I ended up getting two does and then that buck that I shot last year. Okay. So you got, you got a freezer full of meat then. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Are you eating uh, venison then a lot? Uh, a pretty fair amount. Um, 
a lot of the meat I used for my youth group. Uh, okay. I had a boys group meeting at one of my friend's house for, for a while. And every week we'd, we'd cook something up uh, with venison and stuff because my wife will eat it, but um, it, it takes some uh, poking and prodding to get her to, to actually do it for a long period of time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm in the same boat, man. My, you know, the ground stuff like, uh, you know, spaghetti or sloppy joes or, you know, you know, the mixes where you can mix just about anything in with it and make it, it just tastes just like beef, you know, um, any meal like that where the ground beef is the, you know, the ground venison is mixed into it. Uh, my wife will eat it, but if we're start, if we start sitting here and, you know, say, Oh man, I love a good backstrap, you know, a medium, mm-hmm. you know, a, a medium backstrap and, you know, try to, give it to my wife. She'll say, Oh yeah, that's okay. But she would pick a, you know, she'd definitely pick a beef steak over, uh, over deer steak any day. And I don't know. I, I just like to eat the stuff that I kill. So, um, so now you got, uh, you know, you got a really good buck under your belt. You, you've, you've gotten a couple other deer under your belt and, and now you're coming into this third season um, and you make the decision to change up your gear and go from a crossbow to uh, a compound bow. Why? Um, it, I mean, honestly, it was just like stories of people around and on podcasts about like compound bows, just like feeling different than a crossbow. Like, I mean, last year I went shot for shot. Like I didn't miss or anything on any deer uh it was just like every time i pulled the trigger a deer went down and so at that point i was just like uh i wanted the challenge um i wanted that experience anew like i mean we talk you hear all the time about like especially in hunting the idea of like your first time your first of anything and how big uh, experiences are and so like just that hunger for another first uh got me into trying it out right okay so what was that learning curve like um fairly steep but i wouldn't say as bad as it was in the beginning because at that at this point uh coming into my third season i i've gotten over most of what i consider to be the hurdles into hunting um i already had property had stands i i had like you said shot a decent buck I kind of learned a little bit of what I needed to have a little bit of success. I mean, a lot of times it still comes down to luck, but uh, coming into my third season, like my biggest things were like really investing more in the property. So like up until the season, I spent about nine months building a small little cabin to stay on the property and uh, uh, trimming areas for food plots and, and really investing in the property. And so, um, uh, learning to shoot a combo i mean i just i it was just practice 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 was was all it was was getting to my friend's house or somebody else because i can't shoot at my house i live in a condominium complex so just getting over there to to shoot a couple hundred arrows or something like that um every few weeks or something was pretty much the ticket and just over time i got more and more confident with it gotcha so so you, you know, you made the decision to go to a compound, um, getting into that, that season. Now you, you said you started manipulating the property, you started, uh, you know, 
uh, working on food plots. Did you have a food plot or any type of habitat management that you did during the off season really be beneficial to you during the season? Um, yeah, I would say the the food plots were like a big success. So speaking of podcasts, I listened to the Land and Legacy, and they got me on their uh, Legacy Blend uh, food plot seed. So I ordered that because like the year before, I had tried on a smaller kind of food plot and stuff, and I didn't really get that much success on some other products. So I tried theirs, and I mean, just exploded. Like the two areas that I that I put seed down and everything just ended up really being the ticket. Um, it was actually like I was hunting a terrain funnel coming from one of my food plots that ended up getting me the opportunity to get close enough to the buck that I shot this year. So I'd say habitat manipulation, that was, that was the biggest success that I had. Okay. And did you notice a difference, uh, of more deer staying on the property, uh, more deer visiting the food plots, uh, just more deer in general coming through? Yeah, coming into early season, I had probably like the first, the second year, uh, I had probably like two or three doe groups, the doe family groups. This year, I had probably between five and seven uh, doe groups actually staying on the property that I would see uh, quite often. I went from only seeing two or three deer sometimes in a camera to I think this year I had at most like eight in a single photo. Um, and so just seeing a lot more. Uh, frequenting on the property and everything. And that obviously gave me some confidence going into the rut that I'd see some bucks coming by. So Okay. So you changed up your gear. You changed up the property. Um, did you change up your strategy at all leading up to the season? I mean, did you have any any new goals? Um, was it, were you still in kind of a, hey, I'm looking for a two-year-old? Or did your trail cameras provide you hey man maybe i can bump up and go to you know a three-year-old or a four-year-old or man there's a giant on trail camera i want to kill him what was your what, what was your ideals and your goals leading up into the season yeah so um firstly uh especially with like only seeing does in the early season it was kind of hard to come up with a quote-unquote hit list of bucks that i'd like to shoot um i did have this little uh, two and a half year old uh, double drop time buck show up on camera uh, that I thought was really cool. Um, so that was kind of my like goal coming into early season. That and uh, there's like that is a lot closer to me than my father in law's property. So I wanted uh, my goal all year. I mean, I've thrown in so many sits on public land to try to get a deer um, and uh, haven't been successful quite. But that was my biggest goal coming into early get a, a doe or even, I, I mean, I'd have shot a two-year-old buck or even maybe even a one-year-old uh, if it had come by uh, when I was on public. Yeah. So adjusting my expectations from public to, to private. And then I started seeing bucks go up probably around like mid to late November. And so then I kind of had my, my eyes set. Like I, I, I refused to go onto the property other than to bring the kid from my youth group to get his first deer. Um, for early season and so i never even stepped foot on the property until uh the first week of november okay season. all right so you you played off other than you did take a, a kid on that property to try to get him his first year yes sir okay so i mean 
what was your goal then as far as what did what did you want to shoot leading up into November? Were you hoping that uh, you were going to have an equal buck as last year, like a 130, 140 class uh, eight pointer? Or were you going to pass something like that and try to wait and go bigger? Or did you check trail cameras and find that, oh, my God, there's a big buck running around here? What what did you want to accomplish by the end of the 2020 season? Yeah, uh, I would say it was less about uh, 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 age or size group at that point as it was just the experience of saddle hunting. Like I, I just really wanted to just like coming into like my rotation and stuff. I just really wanted to be able to get a lot of sits in the saddle and learn deer movement because like that was the biggest thing was just like my first uh season and most of my second season it was like hunting over bait and stuff so i like i wanted to learn deer wanted to learn movement i wanted to see something and then like i i was very confident i would see something so i would say probably my goal was around a three-year-old um but even if it was smaller than the buck that i'd shot the year prior i had no expectation that i'd shoot anything even close to the deer that i shot uh, uh, last year, this year, until I started seeing the deer that I saw this year come on camera and stuff. Okay. Um, so, so as, as you start to hunt on, you know, you said you, your, this was your first kind of rutcation, right? Yep. How many days did you have dedicated to getting out there and, and starting to hunt? Yeah. I mean, I, I spent a solid seven days every morning, evening, oftentimes all day um, on the, in the stand, um, prior before that, it had just been like getting off work on a Saturday, driving two hours after a 12 hour shift to go sit in the stand for an evening and a morning and then coming home basically. So then what, uh, what were those, those seven days like? Um, I mean, started out, I would say it was a little early. Um, like I, I've, I got to confirm this year, especially like I'd say the, the rut really ramps up around like between the 12th and the 15th. And I was there the first week of November. And so I'd seen some chasing and some buck activity, but it wasn't like it was the, that week after. Um, I did end up missing uh, a really, really good, really wide, really tall eight pointer. Um, probably a little bit smaller than the buck I shot this year, but I ended up missing him at 23 yards um, with my bow about probably the third day into my rotation. Okay. So you, you made a, you, you missed a buck. Um, and then was that really your only encounter in that seven days? No, I mean, I'd seen probably five or six bucks uh, past a couple two year olds. Um, one that I, I, I don't know if I regret now, <laughs> but I did regret passing him uh, leading up to the bu- uh, the days before I shot the buck that I did. But he was he was a real decent eight pointer that had kind of a unique rack, and then uh, countless does. I mean, uh, as long as I sat on sat around those terrain funnels and everything like that, I'd see on average four or five deer sit, um, sometimes more. Okay, so. The, there was deer movement, right? It's not like you were getting skunked and you weren't seeing deer. You were in that in that seven day period. Um, you were you were seeing deer, and it sounds like you were mobile, so you, you were making moves, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. It would usually be like the first hit, first best hit, first hit area. I'd see four or five. Sometimes, like one of my better sets, I saw ten in a single set. But uh, then by the second or third set, I wouldn't seen anything. And so then I got got down and moved to another area. Just kind of. I mean, I never hunted out of the same tree more than once the entire season. I don't think. Um, but uh, I would hunt in the general area, trying to like tighten yeah. my my news around some good bucks that I saw in the distance or something like that. Gotcha. All right. So, so seven days is up. You don't kill a deer. Uh, what was running through your mind at that point? A little bit of depression. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. Uh, I, at that point, like good. I was like, I've got these seven days. If I can get this done. I mean, you're talking about your honey do list to get, get over to South Dakota. Like this is my first vacation <laughs> away from my wife and, away from the house and everything like that. It was, it was a tough sell, uh, to convince her and everything. And so like, I got all this pressure coming home and stuff after all this time I've spent in the woods. And so I was like, I wasn't confident I'd be able to get out much afterwards. And so I was just like, put a lot of pressure on myself. So coming out of it, I was, I was a little, a little bit more than a little frustrated. I just really wanted to get something there, but it ended up not happening. Yeah. So did you get any type of, um, additional days i mean obviously you did but how many additional days did you get to you know go back to the farm and try to hunt uh i mean just weekends pretty much it was just like saturday and sunday here and there um to get out for a couple of sits and try to get get a shot at and stuff but not having those many days in a row and stuff i'd and plus around that time of the year i always get couple guys that are spending more times in the woods even further away or there's a guy on the edge of the property that i don't think likes me hunting very much because he's like one day he was like shooting off, off tannerite watching me come up the hill and um whenever he'd see me park within a couple hours he'd start hearing gunshots oh, and things Jesus. like that trying to scare stuff <laughs> um yeah i mean like there was this one time my second season where I was sitting on the edge of our property and he played, I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world, blaring it at six o'clock in the morning uh, with two subwoofers. Like I could hear it clearly. And I was like 300 yards away from his house. It's crazy. So, so, so that guy's a douche pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. He's, oh my he's God. been a real character throwing trash on the property and tons of stuff. So he thinks he owns your property too, is, is what you're yeah, at. Like he, yeah, he broke. I I suspect. I, can, I mean, I can't say for certain, but someone broke into my cabin and stole everything that was in it early season. So, um, I suspect it was him. We'll see. It's just like, man, all you're all you're trying to do is go out and hunt, and now you got to deal with all this other crap. Yeah. Oh man, but but you end up slaying a giant. But, and did you rub it in his face at all? Like let your tailgate down and like, let, you know, like, I don't know, make it so he could see it. <laughs> That's what I, I would have done. Thought about it. Yeah. I thought about it for sure, but uh, I've never even like really met the guy. He kind of has like a weird kind of like property setup where he's got like these really tall fences and uh, like, don't come on this property signs and things like that. Oh, so yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to stir things up and you know, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you know how it is. Redneck justice yeah. coming around 
for all I know, if I said the wrong thing, he'd burn my cabin to the ground or something. Right, right. So you did you did shoot a good buck. Why don't you walk us through that hunt from the time you left the truck to the time you you squeezed the release on him? Yeah, sure. So uh, got got in. Uh, pro- I I tried to come in about an hour and a half before daylight, uh, which gives me about enough time to get in the stand and sit about 45 minutes before the sun rises. Um, the, the area that I wanted to hunt was pretty much dead center of this triangle property. Um, it's, it's right where I was talking about, about half, I'd say about a, a quarter of the, not a quarter, but like a fifth, I guess, of the way down from the very top of the ridge of this property. Um, and so it took me, took me about, 15, 20 minutes from the, from the truck to get in there. Um, a lot of things that I learned, especially with this hunt, which is why I messaged you was, uh, the, uh, hunting the, the crosswind, like watching you with the whitetail, uh, Wednesdays on whiteboard and stuff like that, uh, with turtles and everything like that. Uh, I saw that there was a good crosswind that morning when I came in, cause a lot of the, the wind is real, uh, choppy there, especially with all the uh, ridges and everything like that, but it usually ends up either being a north or a south wind. Uh, ended up being a north wind that morning on the on the hill, and so I hunt I hunted in pretty much like a where my setup was where I thought a buck would come through was at a like a ninety degree angle from that direction. So he couldn't smell me coming across it, but I pretty much like walked right around where I think he was bedded um, at the top of the ridge and I think he was coming through the food plot to set check some of the does and that's when I when I ended up getting a shot at him um but just going in in the dark I had a specific tree picked out that I had found early in the season just for this kind of sit and got up sat in my saddle and uh ended up right at daybreak there was like I said the younger buck that ended up coming through um it was youth gun opener that morning. So I think, I don't know what deer see, uh, with like orange vests and stuff. Uh, but I've never been picked out the entire season until that morning. Uh, when like, he just looked directly at me, uh, he was downwind and everything and just took off, blew out out of the neighborhood and everything like that. So, um, I was blown away that, that he picked me out like that easily and stuff. But around then, about 45 minutes later, is when this buck ended up coming through. Um, so, so where where, where that, was he coming from, and where was he going to? You think? Yeah. So he was coming around. So like the top of the ridge ends up plateauing in kind of like a spoon shape, is the way that I'd best describe it. Yep. Um, and he was coming around the handle of the spoon, and uh, I was like right where the handle meets the, the spoon shape of this, uh, of like a, a spoon. And so he was coming around the ridge around the handle and right where he came to kind of go around the ridge. I think what he was doing was trying to get into that food plot to scent check for some does and to figure out what, what he was going to do for the day. Um, and so he was just his normal cruising pattern and everything like that. And, a uh, big tree had fallen earlier that year. And so I was hunting right on the edge of that tree so that it, it would bring him into it, but he'd have to go around the tree. And so that's when I shot him was right on the edge of that tree. He just came out right into my shooting lane. 
So this is by far way bigger than the buck you shot last year. And any, you know, we talked about that, this with blinders on, right? The only thing you're focused on right now in your life is this buck coming down this trail. Um, any buck mm-hmm. fever at all? Were you, did you have a moment of clarity? Um, were you, did you have buck fever? Like what, uh, what was going on as he started getting closer and closer? Yeah. So it was a little crazy. Cause like I had had an opportunity at a doe, um, earlier in the year. And I mean, I was hyper on this doe, like just pulled the shot, pulled the shot real hard and went right over her back kind of situation. But like when this buck came, it was like what you hear about the worst scenarios that hunters don't like when the bucks are way far off when you see him and you have minutes until he comes in. And so like, I don't know how I stayed calm, but like, I was like cool as a cucumber up until the moment of truth. Like he came in, uh, I saw him, I, I, I had the time to count his times. I had the time to look at the mass of his antlers, like check his body out whole nine yards. And he just kind of worked his way slowly to me. And, uh, I mean, pulled back, anchored, uh, got, got my shot off. And I've, I ended up double lunging him, but he took two steps and then just dropped. Like he reacted like nothing had hit him. I'd never seen like such a, I've never had such a, like a clean pass through on a deer in my life. Just completely zipped through him. He barely reacted. I thought I thought I had missed him. So I was loading another arrow when I just looked and I saw the blood pouring out and he just collapsed right there. <laughs> Dude, three years in and you're having these moments that every hunter, even me, I've been hunting for a very long time and uh, I wish my deer would drop over dead when I shoot him, right? I mean, this is, this is almost like you wrote it. You know what I mean? This is what I want to happen. And all these things are happening for you. And, uh, man, that's awesome. Congratulations, dude. So how old do you think this deer is? And, uh, Uh, roughly how big do you think he is? Yeah. So I would guess him at probably a four and a half year old. Okay. Um, just based comparing body and teeth to the deer that I shot last year. Um, I actually got him scored by the taxidermist because I, I put him in and, uh, he, uh, what is it? Gross scored 156 and netted a 147. He's a, he's a mainframe eight, but he's got like a giant claw on one side. Yeah. And so, but he's not, doesn't mirror it on the other. It doesn't count for whatever score. It doesn't matter, but 156 yeah. is, is uh, gross. Well, I tell you what, for the, what's the, what's this make? The third buck you've ever shot make is a 150. That's, that yeah. is crazy. That's crazy, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a surreal experience. I, I, the buck fever I experienced after the shot, on the other hand, was just, <laughs> I could not, <laughs> I, I couldn't even get down and for like 30, 40 minutes. I was just looking at him. Yeah. Freaking out. That's crazy, man. So let me ask you this. What is, I mean, every year you've kind of gone up, right? And you're, you're kind of really quickly accelerating into this, um, you know, shooting big bucks, big mature bucks. And are you going to try to equal or best what you did this year? Or are you taking, you still going to go to, you know, 
ease into it a little bit more. Hey, man, if a 128-pointer or two-year-old, three-year-old comes in, I'm going to shoot it. What what are you what are you thinking about for 2021? Yeah, um, I think it's going to be property-specific right now. So the property that I hunt, um, I mean, I by, the, by now I've had 10 deer on camera, I would say, that are three and a half or older. Um, I missed a, what I consider to be a four-year-old eight-pointer this year that if he makes it through, is going to be really good next year. So uh, on that property specifically, I think I'm probably just going to hold out for a three-year-old three, three or a four-year-old. But I, I plan on hitting public pretty hard early season again next year. And so it's probably just going to be a two-year-old or something like that um, just, to, just to experience the, the public land life. Um, I'm actually going to be trying next year to do my first out-of-state hunt. Um, so nice. uh, my expectations, I wouldn't say, are super high. Uh, but I just think I should probably have a little bit higher expectations on that land specifically rather than just shoot the first year that comes by. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, welcome to the club, first off. All right, three years sure. in, you're doing really well. So congratulations on that. Welcome to the club. And uh Good luck in 2020, man. Appreciate it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Hunter for taking time out of his day to hop on the podcast and chit chat with us. Thank you very much for coming on. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast, man. Please subscribe to the Nine Finger Chronicles please subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation feeds because if you don't want to listen to all the podcasts on the network, you can listen to just the Nine Finger Chronicles. And if you want to listen to more than just the Nine Finger Chronicles, you can listen to the entire Sportsman's Nation network. All comes to you just like a normal podcast. So make sure you're following me on Instagram. Make sure you're following me on uh, Facebook. And the same with the Sportsman's Nation Instagram facebook and my space heater in my office turned on while i'm recording this so if you hear something in the background that's what it is be safe have fun get out there get outside there's a lot of hunting left to do this year and uh, man good luck have fun be safe